Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Einstein's Growth Podcast. This is episode number three. I'm super excited about today's guest. The guy that I have with me today is an amazing human being. Not only an amazing human being, but he is really a great architect. He was almost going to work with Zaha Hadid, yes, the legend. He is really amazing. He has done a really great job. He has done really amazing projects. He did work on Asia, Middle Eastern, and he has done also projects in Africa. It's Ken from Studio Kazat. Hello, Ken. Thank you so much for being my guest. I'm really excited about today's episode. Hi. Yes. Thank you, Walid. I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to this interview. So, Kenneth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, share with us some of the struggles that you have been in life? Definitely. I was born in London with my mom and dad. I have two brothers and one sister. Being black and being Jewish, there are a lot of difficulties, um, especially with being like black in the UK. Uh, my biggest struggles has always been my, um, my, you know, I have learning difficulties. When I was a child, I had dyslexia and I have a difficulty to read and write and speak when I was younger. I don't often make friends. I'm quite shy. I had the difficulty to interact with some people. So um, despite the fact that I have a high intelligence, um, I work hard. I tend to do things independently. Um, so that was my struggles of interacting with people who give me instructions and other uh, related tasks as a child. Oh, that's that's really, I didn't know that. Like, this is really inspiring. Yes, um, you know, it's, it's the type of struggle. It's quite difficult for people who are kind of different because I had friends who are different. You know, we have some common topics or uh, hobbies that we do together like football or doing a bit of um, sports, you know, drawing and, you know, going to, you know, spaces that you want to play around and make different activities. That's, that's really amazing, you know. And speaking of football, now I'm, I'm really curious, who is your favourite team? Um, good question. Um, my favourite team is Tottenham Hotspur only because uh, my father knew one of the Tottenham Hotspur players in the 80s. And that's how I supported Tottenham ever since I was born. Wow. So, so we are into Jose Mourinho right, right now. Um, I'm sceptical of Mourinho, but I'm pleased that what, what Tottenham Hotspur are doing at the moment is, is pretty good. We're doing well in the, in the league table and hopefully, you know, we need to win some trophies this coming season. Yeah. Now I'm curious, who is your favorite player of all times? And I mean, I'm not talking about Tottenham, but like from other clubs. Oh, uh, this is, I would say JJ Okocha, who played for Nigeria. Uh, I've seen the guy played in person and he was an incredible uh, footballer. Um, not only he played in England, he played in Turkey, he played in France, he played in Germany. But seeing him play for my country, it was just incredible to see the guy with those skills. And he inspired a lot of footballers like Juanodinho. He inspired um, Kanu. So, um, you know, the guy is incredible. No matter how he does with the ball, he's just an incredible footballer to watch in my time. 
I didn't know that, honestly, I didn't know that he's inspired Ronaldinho. So speaking of inspiration, who inspired you to become an architect? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, you know, you know, going back to my dyslexia, um, it was actually more like, you know, social housing. I was brought up in an estate. So in the UK, we have like social housing where there's not enough space or land to build a house. So when my parents moved from Nigeria to the UK, um, they had to rent out a flat on the fourth floor um, in East London. Um, so I had a great view of London. So I don't think it was a particular person who inspired me to become an architect. It was just when I was six years old, I wanted to become an architect based on drawings I've done, um, watching a lot of boxing and wrestling and, you know, sports as well. Of course, the type of houses I visited, you know, using my creative talent to make random stuff out of books or cassette players or video cassette players or any particular object that I wanted to do something with my hands. And that would also, you know, inspired me to become an architect. So it's just not a particular person, despite my grandfather was an engineer, but it wasn't have that impact on my work. But it's more likely to be like, you know, nature. I would say nature in terms of doing a lot of drawings, doing a lot of model making, watching a lot of TV, cartoons as well. That inspired me to become an architect because I like drawing like spaces inside or outside or drawings around nature. I do a lot of still image drawings or do a lot of, um, you know, photography, uh, do a bit of graffiti on the walls or on the floor since I've been raised up in the social housing estates in London, I, I believe that when it comes to that type of nature, like building nature, the materials itself, it helped me to become an architect rather than a person. So it's like mother nature just inspired me to become an architect. This is really an amazing concept. And I don't know why when you said nature, it, it made me think about the world itself, like the earth did somehow did inspire you to become an architect. Yes. So do you think that architecture can change the world? Um, it, I think it depends on the individual, um, how the person's influenced um, and how it has the... Because um, when you're a person and you're in a space, you look at the site context, you look at the landscape, you take it into the function in terms of how people enter into spaces. It, you know, it depends who you are, how you come into that stage of given the task to use your architectural thinking to change the world. I think if you look at, for example, um, in Paris, um, we, you know, the great Le Corbusier, he was a renowned urban planner who, who was one of the most renowned urban designers in the 20th century. He was the first person to design the city plan of Paris. So he used his own experience to figure out how he can make Paris functionable in terms of how vehicles and how pedestrians work within the space. So um, that way, you know, with its design context, it depends how you interact with the ground and how people move in and out. And that's also as well with urban design in terms of how houses and how offices are arranged. It depends on you know, narratives and storytelling moments within that context. You said storytelling, design. It feels to me like you are talking about art. Do you think that architecture is art? And if it is art, is it copyrighted or not? Um, 
I think it depends on the architect because it depends on the theme of how it's copied. Um, normally, in the, in the architecture business, people are quite, um, you know, reluctant to copy from each other. But I have seen some work that has tried to make an attempt to copy. For example, like, you know, in the UK, we have this huge obsession of social housing and social housing you know, in terms of uh, flats and apartments that is being uh, stacked one another just to save land on ground. If you look in terms of the social housing in the Netherlands and in Germany, uh, the design uh, style and context seems to be the most influential way of dealing with social housing. And when we have a collection of architects from the UK who visits places like Amsterdam and Berlin, because Amsterdam and Berlin are kind of similar to London, but the difference is, is that Amsterdam and Berlin have a way to deal with spaces more fluently. Like they have a way to deal with function, they have a way to deal with how green spaces are used and how they can create playgrounds for young people, um, how they have their design relate on how neighbors can relate to each other. When you have architects from the UK, because in the UK we have the most renowned architects in the world with the amount of architects we produced from fantastic architecture schools in terms of thinking and creative ways of uh, designing buildings. I think it's just like the way of copywriting seems not to be successful only because our surroundings and the environment and within the built environment seems to be very different. Uh, when we have an attempt to design social housing and ways of copying that style from those countries I've mentioned, it doesn't seem to re re replicate the style very successfully only because the fact that we have very tight spaces in the UK is difficult um, to work with spaces that is kind of big but how that that space works with existing buildings in our uh, cities in the UK. That's really true and the thing is as you said the, the British school of, of architecture created some of the greatest architectures of all times and I know that architecture is something that affects the human behavior how do you see like the relationship between human behavior and architecture um the human behavior i with the way i was taught in architecture it's all about how spaces have to have some kind of function and the spatial layout itself um human behavior it, it just depends on the person you know some people have preferences in terms of color, shape, design, in terms of the theme of the space. For example, um, one of my latest projects is working on a autistic garden space for a client in North London, as well as another client who has an autistic son. Who she wants to create an extra space for her son who's autistic, but wants to create an extra learning activity for them. And, you know, I know a lot of friends who are autistic and one of the biggest struggles for people who have autism is color coding uh, spaces and natural light. And what I was trying to um, figure out a way is in order for the person's autism to be controlled, you need to create a space that can actually help them to improve their uh, self-esteem, help them to be more independent. So you're looking in terms of color, you're looking in terms of the temperature of the light, so you're talking about artificial light that would have some kind of um, way that could have an impact on the way the person who's autistic to do such activities. Um, you're looking at natural lights as well. 
um, in terms of how much natural light that could help them to function well. And also, the, 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 you know, there's colours as well in terms of the interior design layouts. So um, that would emphasise on what colours that would have a huge impact on that person's autistic. So human behaviour depends on who's comfortable with the type of architecture design that is being given to them and it helps them to be more... Um, you know, help them to be more satisfied with the way they're working, the way they live, the way they sleep, the way they cook. So all of those functions come into under any particular situation where they really want to fulfill their mood and help them to build their mental health. This is something really fascinating. And like, I could never thought of it this way. Like, I didn't even know that you guys can do such an amazing job. I didn't know that you can plan such behavior this is really fast this is really interesting and very awesome i think it's just a great way to um you know being architects we do such things and you know let's let's bring up sahar did um not only sahar did designed you know buildings but she also designed furniture she designed doorknobs she designed everything in detail because in terms of human behavior you're talking about how we use our arms to open the doorknob to open the door or how we open the window and how we sit on a chair and it's all about the relationship between the human body and how we interact within our spaces um also as well you have to take into consideration about the intimacy between your body and the mind and you know use that function to interact with other particular spaces. So there are books on this. Um, there's a book by one of my tutors from university, Architectural Voices by Sashia Lewis. Uh, Sashia Lewis, sorry. So uh, she done a book about this interaction between the human body and the building, but there's some kind of metaphysical behavior between our minds and the body and the material of the building. So if you see, like, say, for instance, if you see brick wall within the space but you want to interact with the space you having some kind of dialogue to record your moments within the space it has that function where you can understand the space and that's where most architects have the tool to design spaces that would actually bring the best out of those particular architectural buildings so that's the sort of thing that most architects mostly specialize in is having that in-depth analysis of what they can do within that particular space so um, that would lead to some kind of storytelling moments. And what we're trying to do nowadays is making sure uh, inhabitants or occupants who are living within those spaces can actually feel more comfortable and feel more um, satisfying in such a way to be part of a space where they can record down moments or memories. You know, like when I was brought up as a child, I always have that interaction between my pen because I love, I love to do graffiti walls and my wallpaper. That interaction that brings those memories that actually records in your mind and helps you to reflect that moment, that dialogue moment with that wall. So that's how people, especially architects and interior designers, pick a particular material that would reflect upon the character of the space that would satisfy the building. This is like a bag of tricks. And what are some examples of the impossible architecture tricks? Like, I know that there is the partner in Italy. There is some optical illusion there. Yes. The impossible architecture tricks, if you look in terms of, you know, when you look at a skyscraper and you look at from straight up to the top, the biggest trick to take upon is like a forced perspective. 
when you look at a particular building from the ground and up to the sky, you can see two lines going straight up and then meet up. So you see, look as if it's not really a building, but you're looking towards a point. So say, for example, um, one of the biggest skyscrapers in New York, the Fuller Building, which is 285 foot high, um, you have to look at how you've got two straight lines that you could just go, you know, in terms of perspective view, you look straight up. It doesn't, doesn't look like a building. It looks like two lines go straight up to the sky. That sort of optical illusion example where we do work in 3D. It doesn't look like a building anymore. It looks like two lines going straight up to the sky. So that sort of thing, that sort of trick that would actually get people going about looking in terms, not only in 2D point of view, but a 3D point of view. So that sort of trick, people don't have the ability to pick up on it, but it's like emphasizing on looking at it from a three-dimensional point of view. We are not even able to see that it's already here mm. and it's just a trick. It's just an illusion. Yeah, it's like, it's not giving you that, um, you know, it's, it's not obviously explaining it to you. It's just how the eye reads the lines and how it picks up spontaneous um, moments within your vision. Um, there's a book called The Eyes of the Skin, and it's all about how we use our mind to pick up things that we see in front of us, but we pick it up like, you know, in an illusion context. So uh, that's a way that you can pick up things that you, you see from yourself, but other people don't pick it up. So it's just using your brain, using your eyes, using your eyes to pick up things that people don't pick up. It's like your own interpretation of what you see in a building. So that's the sort of um, example most architects, because you know, architects have a different way of picking up things like most people don't pick up or how they visualize, like if you're going to propose a new building, they use their mind, they use their eyes, they, they use the way to pick up such subtlety to create something in their vision, in their head, to propose various ideas on a piece of paper. So that's the sort of um, trick we have. We have superpowers to do such a thing. So it's like we have that visual aspect to just illustrate what the person wants to do within that um, space. But it's all about interpreting, interpreting ways of how we can actually um, build spaces. And we've been given this gift by God to draw out things that we see in our mind as long as it has a good storytelling moment for people to explore those spaces very well. Do you think architects are made or born? It's based on a bit of both. I think with, it's all about having that um, spatial awareness on how you... You know, when you were younger, when you were a child, you, you, you see things in space and you start to arrange things. But at the same time, we've been taught how to discipline our way of controlling these spaces in terms of design, designing its context, how people, uh, like when you design a house, you have to design its function in terms of the kitchen, the bedroom, the bathroom layout, how it works within the spaces and how it works for people to move around the space in terms of the interior space. Now the exterior space is based, is based on um, how the garden is being laid out and how cars are parked and how that house works with other buildings or if it's on an isolated building, then how does it work within the landscape context? So it's all about having the talent, but disciplining yourself to use that talent. It's like being a footballer, you have the talent, but you need to go to um, 
the football academy to train your skills and how to pass the ball, how to head the ball, how to understand the manager's tactics. So it's all about being coached, same way being educated on how you can actually use that tool to execute um, fantastic buildings, like you can execute an amount of goals you score. So that sort of analogy you have to play around in terms of training yourself to be more of a lethal um, architect to produce architectural buildings that would actually help people to grow and help people to develop same way you become a footballer and you have to score goals to, to excite the fans to see your team do well and win trophies and achieve great expectations so that same level feel is all about achieving those expectations to achieve your goal to satisfy the fans or satisfy your customer that you've done a fantastic job that you've fulfilled your mission to be a very good footballer or a very good architect it's all about education and the coaching the training that you get i don't know but i have a weird question do you think the architecture and architects will be replaced by artificial intelligence um it's it really depends with with what's going on with technology of course um we have software programs that we use to produce drawings. Um, it can be replaced. It really depends on who's going to be the ones that are going to say, yes, artificial intelligence is the way forward. But, you know, with, with society nowadays, with the high demand for housing, the high demand for office spaces, the high demand for community spaces, it really depends on those big companies who want to buy up the land, they want to get this sorted out, um, it depends on time and duration. Um, you know, most clients, those rich clients you see, want to build quickly. They want to get things done cheaply. Um, I think it's a way to, um, you know, getting things done. And the worst case scenario of artificial intelligence is the fact that it will be programmed to do a certain a certain specific um, architecture on on this planet. It may not have the ability to produce various types of architecture that could actually be difficult. And I don't know if the type of architecture we have will reflect on society because we have different ways of defining its architecture on, on ground that would actually reflect what people think of it. Does the architecture re represent those people? So artificial intelligence can be, um, be a fantastic way to get things done, but at the same time, it will be difficult to see if it be programmed to produce different types of architecture that reflects in different types of people in our community. The reflection of society. And now I'm wondering, do you think the architecture is the reflection of society? I think it depends which country or it depends which continent you're coming from. Um, there are some architecture that does reflect upon society. Some do, some don't. So um, it depends because what we have in architecture, we have different style movements, like the movement of expression that would have some kind of political statement stating that this movement does reflect on the society aspect. So say for example, um, the Bauhaus movement, which is discovered in Germany in the 1900s, and their design is based on simple design with simple function, with simple color, with simple geometry. And that sort of uh, style does reflect upon how Germany or the Germans itself have this simple way of thinking, this simple function, a simple, way of dealing with society in terms of the way of thinking and a way of doing things in life so um it depends on you know the movement itself and the architect 
uh, but the Bauhaus movement always emphasized on something that would actually have some kind of uh, easygoing way for people to get things completed. Um, that is some kind of defining movement where that would actually reflect on how the Germans get things done and how Germany as a society can get things sorted out. Um, you know, it's interpreted of, you know, with that Bauhaus movement, if you look at the Bauhaus movement, is inter interpreted from different movements across Europe. Um, you know, there are ways of, you know, going back to the idea of copying, you know, it's, it's good to copy, but you use the uh, template to pick up some elements that would enable them to make something quite understandable where architecture can be easily um, defined by people in that area of architects are the master of perspective is that correct yes so my question to you what is your perspective about life my perspective of life yes in terms of an architecture point of view or well actually in terms of an architect's point of view and also as a human being my importance is making sure everyone has a place to live everyone has a place to interact and having a way to learn from each other uh, that's my my expectation in life as an architect i want to design buildings or homes or spaces that would actually have an emphasis to learn and interact and gain knowledge from all cultures around the world it's a way to eliminate hate and bitterness and lust. So that's what I want to do in the next 10, 20 years as an architect, trying to find ways to create a social cohesion where if someone's struggling to buy food and he has no money, then you need someone within the community to support that person. So that's the sort of space I wanted to create no matter if you're rich or poor, um, you need that space where people do need to learn and people want to gain that respect. And that's the sort of, well, let's just say that sort of philosophy where that architectural space is all about making sure, um, you know, that form of hate is not in that form of space. Making sure people learn about your religion, your culture, your, your, um, your gender, all of those aspects of life, that's a way that I want to design my architecture space, a space where people can learn, um, you know, education about your background or any form of education itself. And I think that's what I like to have in my spaces. Love what you just said. And this is reminds me of a project I know that you are working on. It's in Hebron, Palestine, where you are trying to build a house to get Palestinian kids uh, to learn English, is that correct? That is correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about the project, what it needs and stuff like that? Maybe someone from the audience would be able to help. Yes. Um, well, how it started is that when I was at university, um, I was given a scholarship to go to Palestine uh, to work with architects in Ramallah. Uh, the one project I was working with them was designing a children's museum in Bethlehem but mostly focusing on designing like a outdoor public space where there will be some kind of um, public private interaction where it gives a freedom of expression or freedom of interaction for um, women and children. 
So um, I spent a few weeks in uh, Ramallah and then I, w- I was recommended to go to Hebron and I met this wonderful che- teacher who um, wanted, uh, he wanted me to redesign his property in Hebron. He's an English teacher and he's been teaching for nearly 30 years now. Um, he was trained in Saudi Arabia, but he wanted to go back to Hebron. And what he wants to do is um, he has an existing space on the ground floor and he wanted to uh, convert his existing, um, you know, it's like an existing space for visitors to stay in, but he wants to convert them into his own classroom spaces. And then the other space would be for hostel accommodation space for foreign visitors. Um, The purpose of this is that he wanted to create some kind of um, cohesion between the Palestinians who are living in Hebron and the visitors um, who are coming from different countries around the world, as well as that happening, he wants to create his own classroom space where he can teach Palestinians learning how to speak English, um, how to write English, how to read in English. Um, he wants to emphasize on this idea where Palestinians do need to learn the, uh, the, the important aspects of the English language so that they can actually tell stories to um, foreign visitors who are coming to Hebron and talk about their stories, their background, um, having a form of, um, you know, a, some kind of um, interaction where they can share stories, they can do activities, and the Palestinians themselves can actually help them to adapt into Hebron by doing a tour around the city centre, tour around the markets. Um, that sort of way, the architecture itself, it's emphasised on the rehabilita- rehabilitation of the space itself, just to maintain its existing um, building rather than removing its important history of Palestinian architecture. So that's what the emphasis on is building a space where um, Palestinians can come in, learn English, speak English, watch a bit of English programs from the US and the UK, and also have a function in the outdoor setting where they can have some outdoor activities, practical activities for men, women and children. To finish, I have two questions for you, Ken. Yes, the first sure. one, one architect you wish you worked with. Oh, this is a very... <laughs> very <laughs> it's oh, a tricky question. It's a tricky question. Um, who I wish I worked with? Um, oh, this is a very, very tough question. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say Sahara did. I had the chance to... Um, you know, I missed, the, I missed out the opportunity to work with Sahar did. Um, she has complimented my work, my university work, uh, five years ago. Um, I wish I worked for her because I think she's an I- ideal architect who's from a, a country that suffered wars and, you know, political issues in the Middle East. But not only that, she's a, a woman who came to this country and learned about architecture. She used her mathematics skills in order to grasp the architecture design aspects. She went to one of the best architecture schools in the UK, which is the uh, Architecture Association. And that's where she started to make a name for herself in the 1990s. And that's how Sahar did became Sahar did with, with the boundaries and the restrictions that um, she, you know, removed and she just created that um, legacy for not only for women, but for people of colour who want to become architects. Um, I really want to work with Sahar did on some projects. Um, you know, she's a bit of a rebel, but she doesn't take upon any nonsense from other people. And she defined her character in, in those spaces. You know, there's a lot of our buildings in the UK that reflects upon it. 
So I wish I worked with Sahar did if I had the chance to, despite the fact that I had an interview with one of her associates. Um, but um, but I have taken apart her tips and advice from her people who worked with Sahar did, and you know it has benefited me to do well as an as an architect. And she did raise the bar very very high for the standards of architecture. Yes. So my final question to you, Kenneth, is: What is one building you wished you worked on? I really wanted to answer this question because. Um, I have worked with um, an architectural practice called uh, HMM Architects. I've worked with them for a couple of months. Before I left, I had the chance. I wish I had the chance. They were, they were given the opportunity to work on the new Tottenham Hospital Stadium. So that is one building I really, really wanted to work on. I was so excited when we, well, if I did stay on, I would have worked on the Tottenham Hospital Stadium. Um, they were given the chance to work on some sections within the stadium. Um, you know, that's one stadium I really, really wanted to work on, that building itself, um, especially when it comes to, you know, my football team and seeing the designs of, you know, the pictures itself. Um, so that's one particular building I wish I designed uh, as, a, as a Tottenham Hotspur supporter. Yeah, that's the building I really wanted to design. If I had a chance, I would definitely design that building. Can I ask you a favour? Yeah, sure. If one day you have the opportunity to work on the Camp Nou, please, please just do it. Do it for me. I've been to the Camp Nou. The Camp Nou is, I, I'm also a Barcelona fan as well. So uh, I do follow Barcelona uh, football club since the 1990s. So um, yeah, I've been to the new camp. It's one of the most beautiful buildings, uh, stadiums I've ever been. I've been to the stadium. I've been to, I've been to one of the Barcelona matches. This was exactly eight years ago. And um the, the new camp um, museum, seeing a lot of history and culture that defines not only Barcelona, but the Catalonia people uh, itself is just a beautiful place. I would highly recommend you to go and visit once this pandemic stuff is over. It's just a fantastic building. And then, of course, you see um, the uh, Antonio Gaudi's buildings as well. The colourful buildings had a huge reflection on of course, it has a huge reflection on, on the people of Barcelona, the people of Catalonia. It's just an incredible space to see and, and view. It's just highly recommended. You know what? Let's do, let's do something. One, once the, the pandemic is over, yes. and if we have a chance, let's watch a game together. Let's definitely. go to Camp Nou and watch a game. Yes, and definitely. It's, you know what? Let's make it even more inter interesting. Let's watch a, a Clasico there. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm more than happy to watch. I love to watch Barcelona again. It's just one of the best teams I've seen in my life. And seeing Barcelona play against Tottenham, Arsenal, Manchester United, you know, Liverpool, all those big teams, Chelsea, it's just incredible how this team just... It's just, it's like, it's like a work of art. It's just incredible. Absolutely. I mean, especially back in days when we had Iniesta. Yes. Xavi and Iniesta, that was really magical. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, um, what brought me to supporting Barcelona is when in the 1990s, they, went, they had Stoikov, they had Romario, they had, uh, you know, they had a Nigerian player, Aminiki, um, Ronaldo. Um, they had Guardiola. Um, yeah, those those players I, I've seen in in the, you know in the 1990s onwards, it's just incredible. Of course, Marine, Mourinho was there with uh, Louis yeah. van Gaal in the late 90s, so um, everyone has that huge connection with Barcelona Football Club. And it was like the best 
meant to happen to yeah. us. So, Ken, you have been really a wonderful guest. I'm su- I was super excited to have you as a guest. Thank you so much for being my third guest. Thank you so much for bringing so much value. And, of course, we will meet sooner for another episode. We Definitely. will keep surprised what we will talk about. So, yes, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. Thank you, Walid. It's an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's just a great way to just showcase our, um, our talents. So my, my last question, how can people reach out to you? Um, I'm currently working on a website at the moment. Um, they can only reach me on LinkedIn at the moment, which is Kenneth Owele Okafor on LinkedIn. I'm hopeful by next year I have a website running and then that's a way to reach me. You can reach me on Facebook as well. I don't have a Twitter account. I don't have an Instagram account. Um, that's I'm hoping to get that running next year as well. So those are the ways to get back uh, get back to me. And of course, I'm going to put the links on the description. 